Welcome to the Housewife of Horrors podcast. And welcome back. Last week, we had Charming Amy with us to discuss the town of Skidmore, Missouri for a listener request. Well, this week, my ever-faithful companion, Evil from 3B Video, is back. Say hello, Evil. Greetings, Evil. All right, so this week is another listener request, except it is Evil's request. And Damn right. If anybody knows Evil, they know that he is, I like to call him, a wrestling aficionado. Because he knows his wrestling stuff. I don't know if I would go that far, but uh, if you say so, you say so. I'll tell you this. If I was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, the question is a wrestling question. That's still a show? I am totally calling you for my wrestling question on that show. All right, then. Okay. (laughs) So, anyway, this week, uh, Evil's request, he wanted to do the mysterious death of Gino Hernandez. uh, Or Gorgeous Gino, depends on who you are. So, we're going to just dive right into this. And I did some digging, and I did some digging. Previously, uh, if you wanted to know about this, it was one of the famed episodes of dark side of the ring i believe season one it was on so if the name sounds familiar and you were a dark side of the ring watcher you're like oh that's where you heard it from but like any tv show like they're only can cover so much like in an hour like they tried to do the montreal screw job in an hour and i'm like <sighs> had to explain to the housewife here it's like that's not an hour story that's like days of shit i still feel like in the montreal screw job you know vince will sit here and say till he's blue in the face that brett screwed brett no vince screwed brett so fuck vince (laughs) so anyway without further ado we are going to get into this i'm going to give you just a little bit of some background of his upcoming before we get into the uh nitty-gritty of this i already said that he mysteriously died so cat's out of the bag on that well everyone is gonna be dead somewhere in one of your <laughs> shows that's, i mean that's not bearing the lead at all but touche I, I will throw the two cents in there of uh when i finally broke uh broke you down into doing this episode uh you had just the day you had uh, set aside to do all your research i of course had to crash out because i'm on a night shift now and i woke up came out to see the most pissed off annoyed look on your face and i figured i'd done something wrong or you'd gotten some bad news and you had just been researching this case and you just were annoyed with uh half truths i guess or because okay so in the dark side of the ring his it starts off basically with his mom uh, having a lot of questions. Patrice, I believe, or yeah, Patrice, she ended up having like a ton of questions and I feel that she did get some answers through the show, but I got a lot of questions. So I'm sure there are still, if I'm coming up with these questions and head scratching points to this case, I can't be the only one. Um, I do have a theory 
of what happened and uh, we'll, we'll get into all that anyway uh, gorgeous Gino he was called that because of his looks and his style he had the beautiful combed luscious black hair he had the suits the fancy cars the women at one point he was eating even dating Farrah Fawcett and there are pictures of it so it happened but uh yeah he and um his tag team partner of the dynamic duo Chris Adams gentleman Chris Adams yes uh they both you know they were the hot guys they had the hair they had the looks they had the cars they had the women it's a raw nerve gimmick of uh you know, this the snobby, better-than-you attitude guy. He's got the body, he's got the, the bucks, he's got all the the breaks in life kind of thing. So it's, it's a tried-and-true uh, gimmick. Which he did live, you know, it was, a lot of it was kayfabe for the ring, uh, people will think. But no, this, this carried out of the ring. Would he, you say this is kayfabe for real? This is totally kayfabe for real. He... He lived it 24-7. Um, yeah, there's even a part of the story where the mom is like, okay, you can drop that Gino. I know who you are. So even, I mean, at like family dinners or get-togethers and shit, he was still, you know, playing the role of this, you know, good-looking, rich, womanizing man. So anyway. Well, in all fairness, you kind of had to do that back then. Kayfabe was lived 24-7. Like, you were not allowed to kind of break that uh, oh yeah i figured that out with the whole um we'll get into that too i i can't really get into that now because i'm going to start giving stuff away and getting ahead of myself so yeah, it, you, you had to live a gimmick and not break it for fans like it was a cowboy bill watts famously told every, every wrestler that worked for him uh if you lose a fight in a bar to a civilian don't come back to fucking work here ever again you're fired Okay, so some of my research is the Dark Side of the Ring episode in which Vice speaks to, uh, I'm going to list the people that they speak to. They speak to David Manning, who was a former WCCW referee and booker from 77 to 89. Bruce Pritchard, he was a former Houston wrestling general manager and now he does some other shit, but I, I only believe about what half of what comes out of that guy's fucking mouth. Bruce Pritchard has something to say on everything and he's just always, he's just never goes away. But yeah, he's, he's always there. He has his own podcast. Just which is, pay attention to what he says because or don't. one source he'll say ABC happened and then second source he'll be like, oh no, it was ABDEF and it's like, Hold up, dude. The last source, you said this. So, once again, I only believe yeah. about half of what he, comes out of his fucking mouth. He's also, he does his uh, Something to Wrestle or Something to Wrestle With podcast. Don't it's, promote it's, him it's, on it's mine. switched up, but, I mean, well, here's the thing to not, to not listen to. it. Like, he'll do pay-per-view reviews, and he did Over the Edge of 99, and he's like, when as soon as they get to the one heart bit, he's like, yeah, we're not going to really talk about that. I'm like, who the fuck listens to this for anything but that? dipshit so anyway dipshit aside they also speak to his mother patrice his ex-wife uh janie janine um that's that's a genie genie i don't know if they were um were they married uh it listed as ex-wife the blonde yes the the british blonde that's actually also no the british blonde is genie williams okay the, uh, that's who I thought you were the former of. manager slash gino's neighbor 
Yeah, that's also Stone Cold Steve Austin's ex-wife that gave him the name Stone Cold, actually. Okay, well, anyway, they speak to the ex-wife. They speak to Lisha. uh, Lisha, I'm sorry. Some of these names, I know I'm totally slaughtering them, but this is uh, Gino's daughter. Then they also speak to Jake the Snake Roberts, who needs no introduction, and Kevin Von Erich, one of the... Oh, the only. Yeah, the only Von Erichs left, which that's a whole tragic story within <laughs> itself. I can't even get into that. But anyway, just to let you know that they're speaking to people, you know, in the management part of this, his personal life, his mom, uh, and a couple of wrestlers that he wrestled closely with. So we're getting, you know, we're getting it pretty much from the horse's mouth itself. But anyway, what I did really <clears throat> like is um, that everyone spoke so fondly about Gino and how he would light up the ring uh, or he would just light up when he was on the mic, which he was a mic man. He could rock the fucking mic and trash talk like you wouldn't believe. And, um, of course, there's a, a fight, villain in the ring, but I truly feel that that really applied to him just, you know... He he had, like many villains, he had charisma, and he knew how to blur the storylines in with real life. And he was larger than life, like I said, and he loved the expensive lifestyle. So with the fast cars, pretty women, fast lifestyle, expensive lifestyle, we will get into the details of what that lifestyle exactly is. So correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but he did began, uh, he began his wrestling career as a good guy babyface in Detroit with the Sheik. Yes, the Sheik. The original Sheik. Yes, the Sheik's big time wrestling. It was here that he won the United States Heavyweight Championship by beating Bulldog Kent, and then he would lose his title to the Sheik. In 1975, he would move over to SCW, the Southwest Championship Wrestling, in San Antonio, where he trained under Jose Lothario. Hey, that's a familiar name. Uh, I was hoping I was saying that right. Thank God. Yes. Uh, And they made a tag team together. A short time later, he would turn on Jose. This feud would lead up to his first hair versus hair match, which we'll get into the second one later, uh, in which he lost to Jose. That'll be a trend. Anyway, in 1976, he then uh, wrestled with NWA Big Time Wrestling, which uh, that name would change to WCCW, the World Class Championship Wrestling, in 1982. They would change their name. So we've got all kinds of promotions changing letters and shit. So anyway, he's in Texas at this point. <laughs> a lot of promotions. Yes, where he feuded with uh, David Von Erich, and he would wa- he won the NWA Texas Heavyweight Championship off David, but he would then, of course, lose it back. So this is like a belt that's just going back and forth, back and forth. After that loss, he turns to SCW to team up with Tully Blanchard to make the first dynamic duo. He's kind of got like a trend of hair versus hair matches, dynamic duos. This is something you'll hear more than once, and it but it will involve different people. So in 1982, he teams up with promoter Paul Bosch in Mid-South Wrestling, where Gino gets his big break in Houston. He won the NWA Junior 
heavyweight championship over Chavo Guerrero, as in Eddie? Uh, Chavo Sr., because you're thinking, yes, but uh, you're thinking that's... No, I, I just meant what, like, related to Eddie? Yes. Oh, okay. The so... Guerreros are the uh, equivalent of the Von Erichs. All right. So, um, in 1984, he returns to WCCW, formerly NWA, uh, not the band, the wrestling group. It's actually and, a breakoff because NWA is like the like the overall hand, and all these uh, territories are kind of under its umbrella. And actually, lead guys from every territory and promotion all come together as like a uh, like a big group meeting to decide certain champions, which is kind of weird to think of a guy that runs a different promotion, different territory. Uh, agreeing upon a different world champion for a different area, but that's okay. Well, anyway, when he returns to WCW, the Von Erich feud continues, but he was also paired up with Nicola Roberts, uh, Andrea the Lady Giant, uh, of course Jake the Snake Roberts, and his former, uh, not former, his next two next B uh, match. Shit, I can't even speak today. Tag team partner Chris Adams. Uh, and they'll make the dynamic duo 2.0. There's no 2.0. That's just me saying that. 2.0 wasn't a thing then. Right. Uh, it uh, the it was the WCCW Cotton Bowl Extravaganza, October sixth, nineteen eighty five. The sixth match of the night, the dynamic duo would lose the hair match to the Von Erichs. So he's lost his hair in a second fight. Kerry Von Erich would pin Chris Adams for the win, making this the second time that he has to shave his head. First time for Chris. But, <laughs> um, so, am I wrong on any of this information so far, Evil? Uh, no. Okay, great. So, well, I think you would be anyway. A couple of months after the Von Erich hair match, this brings us now to December 1985. The storyline dictates that, uh, the storyline in the show, uh, will dictate that Gino would turn on Chris Adams. On January 26, 1986, Gino would then, uh, Gino would through Harry, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know why it wrote through as in like we're going through somewhere, but anyway, Gino would throw some hair removal cream in the face of Chris, blinding him. <laughs> um, as I mentioned earlier, he was very good about blurring the lines of show and reality. And this storyline uh, was not only the match that would start the fire on their feud, but it would come to play into his death. Um, yeah. This feud was the supposed to be like the anticipated stop top storyline of 1986. They were going to ride this pony through that year. I don't so. think Chris Adams was a great heel anyway. It was kind of against his nature to be be like that, unlike Gino. So it was like probably time to flip it and get him back on being a babyface. Well. Spot. He's supposedly blind, and he's got, like, eye patches over his eyes, and he's, like, in a wheelchair being wheeled around by his wife because he's blind. And, cause and you, you had to live the gimmick. Like, you yeah. had, had to go home, can't answer the door, got to make sure you look the part all the time to make people believe that it's, this kayfabe is real. Okay, so, according to Bruce Pritchard. Pritchard. 
Pritchard, Pritchett, whatever the fuck. It's Pritchard. I know you don't give a fuck. Okay. He would, he, in uh, The Dark Side of the Ring, he talked about there was a nightclub that Gino would visit regularly when he was in Houston, and it was called Judges. And it was like cocaine, acid, drinking. He liked to party and have a good time. And he also rolled with some high rollers, big ballers. Some would say a dangerous crowd. Um, No, cocaine? (laughs) Yeah, so uh, when asked about the type of people Gino hung out with, Jake the Snake, he was like, uh, no, I don't want to talk about that. He just kind of, he really brushed that off. You could see in the interview he's visibly uncomfortable with this question. And so they kind of just press on after that. Jake knows bad places and bad drugs. Um. He then, he gets this far away look, you know, that one, um, that look you get when you're back there in that memory, you're back there in that time. They're good at pointing out when you spot people doing that. Uh, and I know right then, even though he was uncomfortable, he was back there. He was reliving it. He, if we could read minds, we would have had an answer to that question. But anyway, um, he did say uh, that he heard it was people in, quote, powerful positions throughout Houston and Dallas. So his wife is uh, of the same mind as Jake, that Gino was hanging out with dangerous people. However, both of them, once again, were very vague. So we're going to pretty much, I mean, this story really isn't long because, like, he <laughs> kind of switched back and forth through these promotionals uh, throughout the 80s. And, I mean, he passed away in 86. So, I mean, we're already, like, here. So the last time, according to Patricia, that she saw Gino, it was Super Bowl Sunday, 1986. I went and looked that up because I wanted to know exact fucking dates because <laughs> I'm truly believing this mom uh, and other people have convoluted timelines which make me question things. So anyway, it's Super Bowl Sunday, 1986, which makes it January 26th, 1986. And that was back in the day before Super Bowl Sunday was actually, it's now played the first weekend of February instead of the last weekend of January. And that was because in 9-11, that kind of pushed things, that scheduling to a lot of things out. So anyway, it was Sunday, last January of the month. She said, and I quote, he was in a hurry, always in a hurry. He was very fidgety and nervous when he came in, end quote. Um, They did show that he had a box. So he had a box that he brought in to hide in her house. No one knows what he hid in his mother's house or, I mean, I don't know if there's even a a box 100%, but they're saying that he showed up with this box. Uh, But anyway... He felt like something was going to happen to him. And this will kind of be another reoccurring theme of he just kind of always was paranoid. Maybe that was the coke. Maybe it was the lifestyle. Maybe it was the both. But she goes on to quote, He was real nervous, and Gina wasn't afraid of anything. But there were certain things you can't dodge. If somebody wants to get you, they'll get you. End quote. So it's Super Bowl Sunday. 
he's nervous. He's got this feeling that he's just exuding. And his mom, I mean, a mother knows. So anyway, then they get to Dave. Uh, and Dave tells the story about the last time he saw Gino alive. Uh, it was one night at a match. Gino comes into his office and tells him, and like I wrote all this stuff verbatim. So, because I wanted to make sure that I got the fucking details right on this because somebody is lying. Somebody is off. And I'll tell you who I think it is when we get there. He goes, You wouldn't believe it, Dave. You wouldn't believe it. I'm driving back and I look back and I can see someone sitting in the back. I don't know what to do. So I'm watching to see if they're going to try to stab me or stab me or whatever. So all of a sudden I just slammed on the brakes and then they jumped out of the back and they ran off. I think they were going to kill me. I need a gun. End quote. So after that, Dave's like, dude, you don't need a gun. And he tries to just downplay the incident saying, no, no, they're not following you. Um, and Gino is like, yeah. They are following me. I'm afraid something's going to happen to me. You know, I got to get a gun. I got to get a gun. So once again, now we have person number two where Gino is like, something's going to happen to me. Uh, he said that he was scared, but certain that someone, uh, he was scared and he was 100% certain that someone was in the back of his car and that something was going to, bad was going to happen in the near future. So this we're kind of seeing a trend. Anyway, Dave goes on uh, into missing him at the Oklahoma show, which would have been January 30th, because uh, he talked about uh, it was the following Monday. It was the following whatever day, and I looked those days up according to the 1986 calendar. Uh, and he said Gino did not miss shows, but he didn't think much of it at the time. He tried to call him, and there was no answers uh, uh, from any of the phone calls that he made. And this was on January 30th. So we're, you know, a few days, four days after Super Bowl Sunday. He then misses a show in Houston, which is the next day, January 31st. Now, Dave, he's worried. Uh, he goes into work on Monday, February 3rd, still not hearing from Gino. He now knows there's a problem. Yeah, red flags, you know, yeah. get the shows. And he's, <clears throat> he still hadn't even heard from him. He's like, there was no messages, no voicemail, no nothing from him about the two previous shows. Okay, so this is where the timeline gets convoluted from different sources. So Can I got to take an early stab and, uh, <laughs> and uh, ask us, is is the the convoluted stories coming from people in the wrestling business? Yes, it is. Wow. Keller being not surprised on that. Okay, so this is the different source. According to the Encyclopedia of Professional Wrestling, A Hundred Years of History, Headlines, and Hitmakers. Nice. It was February 4th, 1986, when Dave Manning and Rick Hazard, another referee... Uh, and several local police broke into his condo to find him decomposing. However, but Dave tells Vice, he says that he asked Rick to go to Gino's place and check on him. 
Rick gets there. He says he's on the phone. He says uh, his car is here, but there's no one answering the door. Dave asks him to look around and see if he can, you know, see through any windows, anything of the sort. So he's looking around. He's skulking around the house. He gets to the bedroom window to see, you know, his bedroom, the bed, and some body parts laying on the floor behind the bed. Rick immediately calls police. Okay, now the third source here, according to Pro Wrestling Stories, Walter Amen, Gino's manager, was also called. It didn't say, though, who called Walter because he had the keys to the condo and that he arrived at Gino's shortly before the police arrived on the scene. So now we have Dave and Rick went, then just Rick went, then Walter's here all of a sudden. Um, I do believe the Walter part that plays into this a little later, we're getting to that. So we've already got three conflicting stories here. Okay, so then his mom tells Vice that she remembered it was her birthday. And her birthday is February 5th. It's, of course, still 1986. Walter Amon calls Patricia and says, Patrice, have you heard from Gino? She goes, no, why? He goes, well, I need to talk to him. Pat, uh, Patrice comes back with, I haven't heard from him, but today's my birthday and I know he'll be calling me. I'll tell him to give you a call. So the first incident where Walter apparently shows up at his house, that's February 4th. It's February 5th and he's all like, hey, have you heard from Gino? So if they found him dead on the 4th, then why the fuck is Walter calling Patrice on the next day going, have you heard from him? If you were there at the apartment when he was found dead, then why are you calling his mom the next day asking, I need to talk to him? Hold on. Uh, I don't like Walter Amen. There's something about this that just stinks to high heaven and it's got his fucking name on it. So Patrice said that Walter has a key to his apartment. So him and another wrestler go inside to find him dead with a gun on the floor next to him. He calls Patrice back a short time later after the initial phone call uh, of, have you seen him? No, it's my birthday. And she tells, he tells her he's dead and he pretty much hangs up. So once again, uh, this there's a turd and it's got Walter's name on it and it fucking stinks. So was he there on the fourth? Did they find him on the fifth? It sounds like they found him on the fourth. Moving on. When looking for uh, when looking for some newspaper stories instead of just Wikipedia or blogs, uh, it was already in numerous papers on February fifth that Gino was found dead. So, okay, I'm going with somebody, either Dave, Rick, Rick by himself, Dave, Rick, Walter, some combination of these three men found him on the 4th. Newspapers confirm it on the 5th that he was found dead. And I found newspapers for Texas, Louisiana, California, Alabama, and Indiana, to name a few. 
So, I mean, this is like nationwide fucking news by February 5th that he was found dead on the 4th. I was able to locate a couple of news clips from 1986 that where they're interviewing Lieutenant Ron Waldrop of the Dallas Police Department. He went on the record to say uh, that he hadn't been seen since January 30th. Um, and then a good friend of his from Houston had been unable to contact him. He flew down here to check, and that's when he was discovered deceased. Other than the January 30th, he didn't give any dates. So who was this good friend? Was it Walter Amon that was called and flew down here from Houston and found him deceased? So I don't know. We still... So who found the body? This is what I want to know. Was it Dave, Rick? Was it the police when they broke in? Was it just Rick or was it Walter on the 4th or was it Walter and the other wrestler on the 5th? Because also when they say Walter showed up on the 4th that he was there with another wrestler. Um, did Dave, Rick, and the police break into the condo or did Walter let the police in? Because there's conflicting stories there. <laughs> Was Walter even <clears throat> there on the 4th? I truly believe he was there. Is there even a Walter? <laughs> because who cleaned up the drugs before the police got there? Because when this story broke, everybody knows. I mean, there's stories of Gino having sugar bowls full of cocaine. This guy did cocaine. Him and the neighbor, former manager, uh, they did acid together. I mean, not regularly, but he gave her acid, so that leads me to believe that he has acid, like a sheet of it, more than one time. Anyway, they get there, they find a dead body, a gun, and not one fucking bit of drugs or paraphernalia. So who cleaned up the drugs before they got there? If Walter was there on the 5th to let police in the condo, then why did Walter call Patrice on the 5th asking if she heard from Gino? Which version of events really took place? Either story, it's known Walter had the key, the other key to Gino's condo, and that Gino was paranoid and scared in the days leading up to his death, and a gun was found next to the body, but however, there was no drugs found. So there are very little facts that carry over from story to story, but there are more questions than there are facts. Like, these are just the questions I came up with. So I can imagine what his mom might be thinking, what his ex-wife, his friends, you know, just all these people. And it's like, <clears throat> I really want to get Dave, Rick, and Walter together in a room and be like, who the fuck is telling the truth? Who went there on what day and who went together? Anyway, and did you just look around? Did you break in? Did you wait for Walter and the key? Once again, I am just scratching my head because we've got 101 different stories and 101 different ways this happened. You want to add anything to this so far? Uh, this is when you were frustrated as hell and annoyed yes. at me. And uh, the best I could tell you, and I think it still applies, is uh, welcome to the wrestling business, my dear. Okay, so another fact in this is that police estimate that he was dead for four or five days before found. 
So on the fourth or the fifth. He was he he had been dead for at least three days. So it was initially thought to be a homicide because this is where the kayfabe for real starts to come in. Oh yeah. Fans of, you know, the dynamic duo and just wrestling fans in general were calling the police saying that it could be Chris Adams. He had a motive because Gino threw that hair cream in his face and blinded him. So he's got total fucking motive to want to kill him. It's like, oh, you want to take my vision? Of course, how is a blind guy going to show up and kill him? I'm thinking maybe he had somebody hired. Either way, people are blaming Chris Adams because he was blinded and pissed off at Gino. I mean, it it goes with the territory at the time. Like, there's stories of, like, Roddy Piper, you know, fending off women in the crowd with uh, blades ready to stab you and people waiting in the parking lot with weapons and shit ready to, to do stuff to you. Even as far as, you know, guys in other territories, other workers in other territories, you know, kind of, you come into someone else's territory and they'll legit put you in a hole and break your leg. Like, you're not the world champion around here. Like, don't come into my territory with this kind of shit. I mean, the same thing also kind of came up when uh, Benoit went down. As people immediately were like, it was Kevin Sullivan. Kevin Sullivan did it. He had his his real life ex wife and had a storyline back in WCW. Kevin Sullivan, he's a he's a Satanist. Uh, I'm positive he did it. He's a Satanist. He played a Satanist character on the on the uh, program for a brief time. Okay, well. As you're telling this, I totally feel like uh, Ben Affleck in uh, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. And it's like, these are fictional characters. Fictional characters. I feel like Kevin Nash. Like, it's fake. It's all bullshit. It's all this for the numbers. Right. Okay. So, anyway. We didn't believe Police are calling in. It's Chris Adams. It's Chris Adams. But, however, no foul play was found. There was no signs of struggle. There was no trauma to the body, uh, but he is so decomposed that officials cannot determine the exact cause of death. Because it's Texas in January, so even that, still like a good 70 degrees on and average. who knows, he may have had like his heat on for a day or two. It might have been, you know, unseasonally chilly or something. Um, I just know it's generally like 70 or so degrees in January in Texas, so it's like... Even in that kind of time frame, it's like, that's fairly warm to, right. be, to leave, you know, food and shit out. So anything's going to start going bad. All right. So another layer to this onion is Patrice just gets home, I'm guessing, from the police station or maybe his apartment. But her and Micah, Mika, her daughter, they are devastated. There's a knock at the door. Um, when she's telling the story, she doesn't say any names yet. So it will come into play. But like as you're listening to her initially tell the story, it's very vague. And you're like, where the hell is this going? So anyway, uh, this man at the door, and I quote, I would like to come in and discuss the funeral. So, of course, she lets him in. She says that he leans in close to her face, and while waving his finger in her face, he tells her, and I quote, Gino owed me a lot of money, but just don't you worry about it, because I'm going to pay for his funeral. End quote. 
she said that uh, she she felt this was just ominous and it sounded ominous and it fucking scared her. Like she became scared at, at this moment. So it's now the day of his funeral and at the day of the funeral, there's a man there that most people didn't know who he was and he gets up and he gives this strange eulogy talking about beating people up in Las Vegas and you know, wild times like that. I didn't know you could just do that. Just show up and just perform a eulogy at random funerals. Like, well, sounds like a jackass skit. Maybe. I mean, I know some funerals, they kind of, hey, if anybody at this time wants to get up and share a memory or say something nice, they usually have that. It's not kind of yeah. like a, it's not like a standard thing, like at a wedding where you speak now or forever you hold your peace. <laughs> Uh, some people choose to do that. Some people just choose to not have people get up. But anyway, um, so he's talking about beating people up in Vegas. This man is the same man that visited Patrice about paying for Gino's funeral. And his name is John Royal. It's rumored that he is a big time drug dealer. And that's not the only rumor flying around. Sounds like it with a name like that. John Royal. <clears throat> yeah, that sounds like... Yeah, I could believe He's, he's got the best coke in town. Yeah. With a name like Royal, you can't go wrong. Yeah. Schmuckers Royal, you know, you know it's good. <laughs> so, anyway, rumors are just flying. And wrestlers are speculating about how and why Gino was killed. Um... Was it drugs and gambling? Uh, he owed people money. It was even rumored, once again, that Chris killed him because they were at odds. But, you know... If, wasn't, wasn't there also some bits about him either wanting to start up his own promotion at some point, and that could be someone rubbed wrong, or am I mixing it with, a, like, Bruiser Brody or somebody else? I don't remember hearing anything about him wanting to start up a new promotion, but that could or be... Or get so into the drug business. That could be... Uh, okay, uh, there was... There is some talk about that, okay. yes. Uh, but the starting his own promotion... I'm probably mixing it with Brody. I do not recall that. So, anyway, his family was not allowed to see the body. His ex-wife, there's a truck driving by, anyway, his ex-wife said that Walter told them they couldn't see the body. He denied them seeing the body because of the condition, which I can appreciate that. I saw arachnophobia. Uh, you know, somebody's been laying in some mildly warm Texas heat for four or five days. I don't think I would want to see my loved one like that. So. Face down, probably. And Patrice, okay, I love this lady. His mom, she is she is a hoot, and she is a pillar of strength through this. But um, she saves everything she can about his death. Any piece of paper, whatever. And since she can't see the body or go to his apartment, and she's not really getting any answers to her questions from anybody, she starts her own investigation. Hell yeah, Patrice. So, she and Dave believe that there was somebody in the apartment with him when he died because the deadbolt was not locked. And he was always paranoid and he always locked that deadbolt. So, who was there with him and left him for dead? That's some of her questioning. 
So then the autopsy report lists his death as acute cocaine intoxication and that he had five times the amount, enough to kill an elephant. Of course, they said the same thing about Kurt Cobain, that he had five times the amount of heroin in his system. But Did I, they, was it in an odd place? In his body, like not normally where uh, it would be? Yes, some of it was ingested, I guess you could say. Um, I remember Kevin Von Erich talking about hearing that they found some in his stomach, and he's like, did they eat it? Or And then there was speculation, I think, that he had of like maybe like some packets of it inside of him I didn't somehow hear packets, but I did hear some was in his stomach. Yeah. So, that being said, other red flags are going off about the report as well. Because, okay, this is where his wife kind of comes in to talk about this as well. But it listed him as morbidly obese. What? Yes. Um, I mean, I guess if you're not thinking about muscle mass, his weight, he does, you know, he does have a heavy weight. But he was not obese or morbidly obese by any means. He was cut. He was fit. And that guy had like 0% body fat and all muscle. I'll admit, he looked good. He did. He was cut. Anyway, in addition to listing him as morbidly obese, they listed him as a, his, uh, um, he was listed as Mexican and that he was uncircumcised. So once again... He was not morbidly obese by any means, and his wife said that he was circumcised. So now they're questioning whose body do they have? Like I said, onion, layers, bullshit. So <laughs> That's a t-shirt I want. <laughs> onion, layers, bullshit. So his family gets scared about uh, those that killed Gino that might come after them if they keep asking questions. So, of course, they just, they stop asking questions. Um, His mom is tired of living in fear after, God, God, I think she said it's been like 30 years. Uh, So she finally, she wants answers. She wants some kind of conclusion, resolution, closure. Probably closure. um, Yeah. Justice. Um, so she tells her story to Dark Side of the Ring. And after recording her part, producers called John Royal. And he had just recently served a 30-year prison term for trafficking cocaine, but he totally has a conversation with them. Um, he does not deny Patrice's story about going to her house and offering to pay for the funeral. But he does deny saying that Gino owed him lots of money. In fact, he says, Gino didn't owe me any money. Yeah, because he's dead now. I got my money. I got my debt paid. So he tells producers, and I quote, I was with him until like 1 o'clock in the morning on the night he died. We were at the club, and he was in a good mood. He was buying drinks, and he was drinking a lot. I assume that he was doing some drugs. Then Gino left with these airline stewardesses, and that's the last time I saw him alive. Presumably, that was the night he died. End quote on that. But Allegedly. then he, 
Then he goes on to say, and when I say that somebody says something, like I paused, went back, paused, went back, so I would have their word verbatim. Because once again, it, the devil's in the details for me. So he goes on to say, I had misgivings because Gino had this problem with drugs and I should have recognized it and did an intervention with him and saved him. Right. Uh, if you're a big time Coke dealer and you've got kind of a famous clientele, you know, a client and he's, you know, maybe moving some for you, but definitely doing a lot, making you some money or something. Who fucking knows about the money part? But why would you want to do an intervention yeah, on somebody even, who's doing your product? Intervention, I don't even think it was a thing yet then, but I'm positive that uh, that shit was moving around the locker room hardcore back then too. So it probably was... Uh, facilitating other guys' needs as well in the locker room. So I did find a court document confirming that John Royal was arrested in 1985 for selling cocaine to an undercover agent in 1983. He pled guilty and was imprisoned in 1986. So while, and this is according to court documents here, while imprisoned, Royal enlisted LaBeouf, and others to carry on his drug operations for him. He did three years, and after his release, he was, of course, still in the cocaine business because others had been running it. And evidence is located in his house, and he is arrested again and given a 30-year sentence, 10 years supervised release, a $25,000 fine, and a $50 special assessment. I don't know what the $50 is for, but... I think after 30 years, 10 years probation, a $25,000 fine, what's $50? <laughs> Drop in the bucket. Right. So during the evidence part of John Royal's trial, evidence emerges that Gino was his customer and that, quote, Gino Hernandez died in 1986 as a result of using cocaine that Royal supplied. He, of course, denies this bit of evidence, but a government witness testified that Royal supplied the cocaine to LaBeouf, um, who was unable to sell it as planned because there was something wrong with it, and that LaBeouf had given it to Hernandez. So, I guess there was some <clears throat> cut the wrong way. Maybe it was not cut enough. There was something wrong with the cocaine. Baking soda instead of baking powder. He couldn't. <laughs> you're going to have muffins growing out of your nose. Yep. <clears throat> Pardon me. Anyway, either way, there's something wrong with the coke. And Royal gave it to LaBeouf. LaBeouf couldn't, you know, get rid of it. So it's like, here, Hernandez, enjoy some free coke on me. I don't know. So the government had more than enough evidence without the death of Hernandez to convict. But that bit of evidence was, and his attorney explained it as, completely unnecessary to the government's case, and we discern no purpose other than prosecu prosecutorial overkill. <laughs> Easy for you to say. Right. So he was convicted of the conspiracy to possess with intent to distribute cocaine. He's doing three dimes in the... Pen, so the clink. So then another layer to this comes up to this onion. 
producers also speak to another drug trafficker that he wanted to remain anonymous, but he comes forward with his version of events. And when they show him, his voice is, of course, distorted a bit. Unsolved mystery style. Yes, and he is, you know, just kind of a dark shadow of himself. And I typed word for word what this guy said. So um, he goes, yeah, I really wanted to remain anonymous. This was 30 years ago, uh, and I'm not really here to sugarcoat anything. I I wanted to tell the truth. You know, I would like to set the record straight for the people who are concerned about Gino's demise. So producers take this recording from this anonymous drug trafficker, and they take it to Patrice for her to hear it first. So she's got her headphones on, and this is what she hears. Anonymous goes on to say, and this is quite a long quote, There is nothing I can gain from this. I'm only doing this because I don't want Gino's family to worry one more minute. If they have been worried for 30 years, they worried, you know, 29 years and 364 days too long. I met Gino through some other people in the group, and we got to be good friends. This was the 80s, and disco was popular, and the cocaine and drugs were all just a part of that culture. And we saw an opportunity to get involved in selling drugs. And one of the guys in the group had cultivated a connection. He would bring it in and he would give us each a certain amount. And not many people know that Gino was involved in this. He was a professional wrestler and he saw us starting to make some money and he thought it would be a good opportunity for him. He didn't make a lot of money as a wrestler, and it was basically just a way for some young guys to make money, and it was just something that everybody was kind of doing in that period of time, in that quote. So, right there, I, you know what, I I know this guy's anonymous and everything, but I'm kind of believing what he's saying, because, you know, he's he's got details, he's... I don't know. His story co- coincides with things. So producers asked this anonymous guy what he thought the circumstances of Gino's death was. And this is another long one. He goes, Unfortunately, I felt like Gino started off recreationally using drugs, and I think the drugs got a hold of him. You think? Anyway. <laughs> And, of course, we were all, you know, super concerned because we were in a business that we could, uh, we knew could get us all in a lot of trouble, even if we weren't gangsters. Or, at the same time, I don't think we saw a cop behind every bush like Gino seemed to do in the last part of his life. Just knowing Gino, I would imagine that he probably went to a club and probably drank a lot of alcohol And he probably came back to his apartment and overdosed on drugs and died of a combination of drugs and alcohol. I don't know Gino's family, but I would speak to them directly and say, do not be concerned about anything that happened to Gino. It was basically just a situation of his own doing, unfortunately. I know that's hard to hear. 
I know you loved him. I loved him too. But if you're concerned about anything, you should put that to rest. You've worried for 30 years and I can absolutely tell you there's nothing to worry about. End quote. Um, it was this, it was relieving for Patrice, but it was sad. Um, she was sad because, you know, it was a life of excess that possibly killed her son. And then it was relieving on the same hand because this is 30 years of worrying about, oh, if I talk about my son's death, is somebody going to come kill me? So, uh, she said that she felt good and she goes, I can even have a margarita. Um, and what was kind of touching was during the dark side of the ring episode at the end, when they're kind of going through the credits, her and her best friend that's there with her, um, they were having margaritas and you could kind of just see, at least I could like through the whole interview of dark side of the ring she's just so serious and maybe not so much on edge but there was just i don't know she just had this something about her that it wasn't happiness it wasn't it was just straight up like fear and questions and unknowing that's it she had an unknowingness to her but then by the time she's drinking margaritas it seems like she just kind of had her head held higher and that smile with her best friend as they toasted it looked like a genuine smile so even if there are no a hundred percent definitive answers to any of this at least this lady this mother this broken-hearted mother can finally rest easy she can talk about her son, remember her son. She can, you know, get some piece of closure. There, it was, that part was nice. And I don't know. I, I really believe this anonymous drug trafficker, um, at least I'm appreciative of what he brought to Patrice. So your thoughts? I always thought it was a strange, just a... Uh case even when i first saw the stuff with the wccw uh dvd which uh i had put you through years ago and uh the triumph and tragedy of all that mess just thought it was a weird like what did go on here and apparently i was the only one because yeah dark side had an episode of it first season and then yeah hearing the different onion layers you uh, peeled away <clears throat> dealing with this it's like yeah it's probably there's more reasons why i was like this what is what is exactly the deal here but so what do you think what do you how do you think he died do you think it was something dark and ominous or do you think like he said it was kind of a a destiny of his own making a, a I, life of excess i always thought there was just something off about it and i still feel like 12 15 percent of me is like I still don't quite believe a hundred percent that it's not something nefarious uh, there, but <clears throat> there is uh, a thing in the wrestling business where I do believe the whoever it was that showed up there, I believe they showed up there the day early. I believe they found all his shit, and I believe they they have a they have their own code, their their brotherhood, their uh, fraternity lifestyle. 
you know, code of ethics. Like, we everyone covers everyone else's ass. That's something that went on for probably still even to this day. People are, like, tr- just trying to cover other wrestlers' asses when they're fucking shit up. So I believe they found his shit. They they flushed all his drug, got rid of all of it. He's definitely not the first nor nor the last that got that kind of coverage from other wrestlers. And I think they called the uh, the mom uh, fishing to be like, does she know yet? Just ask her something generic, like, oh, she doesn't know. Yeah, okay, just let that lie for for now until we figure out what else we need to get rid of in order to cover him. Because I think they did the same thing for. Like David Von Erich, and I, I, I know the other guys got covered for other shit, even all the way up to when Eddie Guerrero was dealing with his substance abuse problems, and they were covering for him showing up, you know, loaded to shows, and even on Benoit's thing when Benoit was uh, missing his shows, when his shit went down, sending text message those weird messages that he sent out, guys were not letting higher ups and people of authority know shit from Jump Street because they're it's that their own bullshit inner circle of protecting their protecting the boys kind of thing. Well, um, I'll have to agree with you. I do believe that he was found on the fourth. Uh, I believe that Walter Amon showed up and flushed the sugar bowl full of cocaine, made sure, you know, it's like, well, if he's going to be found dead, let's not add insult to injury. Let's get rid of the Coke, the paraphernalia. Um, I believe that he had a gun, because he was paranoid. Um, That's what Coke will do to you, I hear, though. Yeah. Um, was somebody there that night? He probably had a lady there. Um, and then after they had their fun, she obviously left. And I think he continued to drink and do drugs. Um, and it was a destiny of his own making. You can only do, you know, so much drugs and so much alcohol before it just, you know, takes a toll on the heart. And um, I don't, I think that the only thing nefarious about this is the whole calling the mom the next day, the flush and the coke, the secrecy with some details. But since there was no forced entry, no trauma to the body, no signs of a struggle anywhere in the condo, uh, nothing broken, anything of the sort. I just, I think that he, you know, died from excess. You said said there was no forcible entry? No, no forcible entry. Um, None of that. So, um, yeah, he just kind of died, and I think that they wanted to cover up. Because, I mean, if there's coke found, then people are going to start asking questions. There's going to be investigation into managers and friends and, you know, cohorts and shit like that. So it's like, let's just get rid of this to eliminate any questions because, you know, what happens if Walter was like, yeah, there was coke. Yeah, he was doing coke. I knew he was doing coke. Could Walter have gotten maybe into some hot water, maybe lost a job, been defamed in the news somehow? So He'd come back in on the company. Right. Like, so if he's doing this, who where'd he get this from? Who else is doing it in the business? That and cocaine then it's a spotlight on them. Is just bringing down <clears throat> heat on everybody. So let's eliminate the heat and get rid of the coke. Um but yeah, I believe that it was just excess and he like that trafficker said, they were partying together, they were having a good time, he went home, and one thing led to another. Uh, and the only thing nefarious about this is people's details. 
Welcome and to the wrestling business. I think personally, if if you're all going to be telling a story, you guys should get together and figure out the fucking details because, you know, between Rick and Dave and fucking Bruce and Walter and it's like, who was there? It sounds like everybody and their mom was there. Everybody but Gino's mom, I should say. And he's just another guy on the list of not just in WCCW, which had a laundry list of guys, you know, dying early for various reasons. But it's for up to a certain era, like a wrestler dying before 65 is pretty common and it's fairly high number and even higher for guys that are in their mid 30s in the wrestling business and dying from either pain medication, cocaine you know, some type of narcotics, wear and tear on the body, you know, solmas, Let's muscle not, relaxers. And not to mention, you know, a plethora of suicides, but that's a whole different story on its own. But That's with yeah, pressure I mean, and working in the business. Didn't they have, like, a congressional uh, hearing about, like, the use of steroids and illegal drugs or something at one point? Maybe not WCCW, but... I believe that's the current, at this moment in time, last episode of this season of Darksiders are doing the entire steroid trial, because uh, they did have the drug doctor that was uh, supply. McMahon and the boys with their quote-unquote candy, Dr. Zahorian, uh, they had his big trial for distributing uh, steroids, and then they had the the trial on whether or not McMahon was distributing this shit to the guys personally, which he got off by the skin of his teeth, you know, wearing his neck brace for sympathy and bullshit. Uh, McMahon was wearing a neck brace? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Had to play that up. I think it was playing up like a bike injury or something but yeah there's there's you can find the court sketches of him in that neck brace in 93 getting off the steroid trial but yeah it finally came came down in the in the early 90s well i believe that you know like um the steroids of course they use to bulk up the somas and painkillers they use because these guys were in chronic pain well you're in chronic pain and you're getting their ass kicked and you're working 300 nights a year in the cocaine is to keep them working 300 nights a year. Well, yeah, Jake always says stuff like, like you take the Solmas and shit off after a show because you're all hyped up after a show. You need something to, you know, relax the body and go to sleep. That way you need something to wake up for the show. That's why you do cocaine to wake up for the show. And then you're in just a cycle of that five days a week, six days a week for 20 years. Yeah, and uh, Gino Hernandez was no exception to that rule, even though it wasn't, you know, WWE... It was still within the, the wrestling rest, the wrestling industry. business that is all right. the same. And he's hurting from taking hit after hit, so I'm sure he's taking, you know, pain pills. He's got the coke to keep him going. He's got the coke for the flashy lifestyle too. It was the fucking eighties. You know, hot cars, hot women, hot coke, you know, that was kind of the thing. It's another T shirt right there. Hot women, hot oh shit, I forgot it all already. <laughs> Good thing we have it on recording here. We can listen back to it. Well, we have uh, reached the end of another show, and uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram or Facebook, uh, where I do post visual aids for the people that we talk about, because once again, I'm one of those people. I like faces to names. Great so, visual aids you uh, are attached to this one. I got to see him early. Yes, uh, there's going to be uh, quite a few. Like Even him and Farrah Fawcett, him getting his head shaved, you're going to see it all. But uh, 
thank you for listening. And uh, if you have any requests, feel free to drop me a DM and I will get to that and get to researching it. Thank you all for listening. And I appreciate the love, support, listens and likes. So y'all stay safe out there and I guess stay tuned for the next story. What will it be? Another listener request (laughs) or something that I've had on my list for quite a while. I'm going to say onion, layers, and bullshit. There is going to always be a layered onion.